a polyvagal breakdown of combined autonomic nervous system states. My name is Justin Sinceri, licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to episode seven of the Polyvagal Podcast. One announcement this week, um, which is I have an amazing listener base. That includes you. That's all. Oh, and also make sure you listen to the previous episodes. You might be a little bit lost without it. I want to make sure everyone's up to speed. So listen to the previous six. And also, of course, check in with yourself. Potentially triggering episode. But I think there will be a lot of aha moments. I think it's safe. I handle it safely, of course. Um, nothing's super detailed at all. Uh, but, you know, I think it'll be more aha. But, I, I, you know, of course, just... Make sure you're checking in with yourself, right? A little transition sound there. I've, I've noticed, because I listened to all these back, and um, I noticed that it's just, obviously it's a lot of talking, but uh, having those little mental breaks, those little musical breaks, I think are a good idea. Speaking of music, I have a music sample here for you, and what I want you to do is, um, of course, listen with your body, not with your ears, and notice your bodily experience. And especially there's this one's different because the music samples I've played in the past have been there's more or less one state associated with the sample. But this one I want you to notice if there's a shift in state as you're listening to it. So focus on your body, your torso, your belly, your um, chest area, and listen with your body and see if you notice any shifts. Did you notice a difference between the first part of the sample and the second part? There, there's, a, there's a change that happens in the music. And if you're like me, you'll notice a change in your, um, your bodily state. So the first part, we're happy, we're safe, and we're motivated, right? Hopefully. And the theme is moving on up. So we are improving our lifestyle, improving the safety of our family, and going toward you know a better life, I think, is what the point of the, of the first part there is, right? But... It changes. There's a there's a moment where it changes, and I'll play it back. But basically, what happens is the the piano is taken away, and the vocals get a little bit more serious. And for me, there's a shift there. And this during that second part of the sample, there's a narrative taking place of how we got to this point. Um, and so the lyrics in particular are: fish don't fry in the kitchen, beans don't burn on the grill. Took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. So life was just super simple, but life, there was issues going on in the home, like, you know, the appliances weren't working properly. Um, just to kind of give you a sample of what life may have been like uh, before, moving on up. Um, so, but you'll notice that the singing changes. She goes a little bit flatter, and the piano, which was a very safe sound and motivating and uplifting, gets taken away. So for me, oh, and what we're left with is a very, very deep beat in the background. It's very subtle, but it's back there. And we're also left with uh, the hand claps, which is more in the middle ground, and then the voice in the foreground. So I feel during the second part, 
there's still like a motivation, like a sympathetic arousal, but it's more of a tense. The safety has been removed. And so now it's, it's, it feels more serious during the, the story of how things were. And then also I noticed that when sometimes with silence, it can be felt if, if all of a sudden like there's silence, like there's, if there's sound and then all of a sudden that sound is taken away, especially like a safe sound, or actually even like if think about in a place where you've been overwhelmed, where you, where you're like your auditory, like you're, you're hearing a lot or you're around a lot of people, like a mall maybe, like during Christmas time. If all of a sudden those things disappeared, you would notice in your body state that that silence would sort of be deafening and you'd be left with the all of that overstimulation. You'd, you'd be left with that sensation of overstimulation. But that, that's how I experience it at least. So in this song, when the piano is taken away and the voice goes down a little bit, there's... Even though they're still, we're still listening. There's a moment of like silence for me, but I'm left with this sort of tense um, sort of feeling because the safety's been taken away, and I'm left with um, the very deep sounds, the more monotone voice. All right, so we'll listen to it again, and the piano does kick back on later later on in the song, but I'm not going to go that far into it to kind of bring the safety back. Let's hear it again, and I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit into it. To a So the voice is very safe, up and down, lots of prosody, right? So that did you notice that the deafening silence, even though there were still things we were listening to, there's a moment of ba-boom, boom, and then we get more serious. And we're left with... I'll, I'll play it again. I'll, I'll stop interrupting, I promise. But, but I just want you to notice that. So here we go. I'll, I'll, I won't interrupt it. I'll play it one time. Right, there you go. So I played it all the way through to the next part where the safety comes back in, vocal prosody comes back full force, the piano's in there. Uh, but hopefully you heard the difference and felt it. I'm sorry, hopefully you felt the difference in between those two parts of the song. All right, so hopefully you got a lot out of that and that you were able to feel the state shift. Music has a big impact on us, uh, whether we realize it or not. So hopefully I'm bringing some um, awareness, some consciousness to what your body's going through. Let's listen to this sound now before we move on to our big topic. Let's listen to the sound and kind of recenter. The topic today is mixed states. We have our states of flight and fight and freeze. Those are the basic ones, the primary states. And then, but these states can mix together. And um, the first one is called play. Play is a mixed state. Play happens when we are combining our safe and social, our social engagement system, safe and social. So safe and social plus the, the flight and fight system, the more sympathetic arousal. So it's, it's um, safety plus sympathetic arousal. We're moving around during play. Uh, so that, 
That's it's a combination. It doesn't happen without the two of those together. So this is you're using mobility with safety. Now during play, and this is true for dogs as well, or pretty much any mammals that play, that there are face-to-face signals that they give to each other that signal safety. If you watch your dogs play, they will constantly be looking at each other and checking and checking and checking, and they're always giving each other safe facial signals. Same same thing with kids, that there's safe facial signals being given. Um, Play is also where there's shared attention, and maybe there's not face-to-face happening a ton, but there's shared attention on things like a puzzle or a soccer ball. Um, even in even in sport games, there's there is a lot of looking up and seeing where people are are, but uh, for the most part, we're focusing on the same thing, like a ball or like a puzzle or drawing something, and we're kind of with each other, but we're sharing our attention on something. It's like like a common point of interest, really. So being in a, I don't want to call it a state of play, but I, I guess I just will. Uh, being in a because st- it's not a primary state. It's, it's not like flight, fight, and freeze that are primary. Play seems to be it's built upon the primary one. So I don't want to call it. It's it's not a state unto itself. It's kind of like the behavior of the two states to, of two primary states combined. But anyhow, so I'll, I'll just say state for shorthand though. So the state of play is shared. It is safe, and the two let's say two or more people, the two or more nervous systems that are involved in the play are in the same bodily state. So when we play tag, um, you and me, we go outside and play tag, right? So when you and I play tag, we are both mobilized and in a state of safety. We're both in the same state. If I was mobilized without the safety, I'm no longer really playing. I'm sort of doing my own thing. And maybe I can follow the rules enough to get away with it. But, you know, there's plenty of kids that they say um, they don't play well with others. That's what we're talking about. But safety, I'm sorry, but, but play in in the purest sense is shared. It's together. It's something we do together. It's safe. And we're in the same bodily state of safety plus flight and fight, but in a safe way. And the two or more nervous systems are, are attuned. We're attuned. Last time we talked about misattunement where two nervous systems are in different states. Play is, we are attuned, we're in the same state. Now, play is extremely important. And adults, I know actually it's probably all only adults listening to this, do not discount the importance of play. It is enormous, for not just for kids, but for adults as well, but I'll focus on kids. Um, play exercises the ability to shift up and down the polyvagal ladder. And this could include as well, um, yeah, shutdown, because if you play hide and seek, you have to be calm, quiet, and still, and to be able to tolerate that. That's, yeah. So, but play, for the most part, I'm talking about the mobility, the uh, sympathetic flight fight system. So, play is a chance for kids to exercise their ability to go down the ladder and up the ladder and down and up and to do so simultaneously. It's, it's incredibly important to exercise and strengthen the vagal break that we talked about last time, which is the so- safe and social system and the impact that it has on inhibiting the um, sympathetic arousal. The safe and social system keeps the heartbeat 20 or 30 beats less and in the safe state. Play is absolutely huge when it comes to exercising the vagal break. It is so important. And I even put in my, in my outline, I put so with numerous O's to emphasize 
so <laughs> important with kids. It's so important. And it's like, I think as adults, we look at it as like they're killing time or they're messing around. But no, they are strengthening their vagal breaks. Um, and we as parents, I really hope that we're doing that with them. That's so important. But they're, so they're strengthening their vagal break, which is they're strengthening their social engagement system and they're strengthening their, able, their ability to inhibit those um, sympathetic mobility fight flight responses okay P- play is also how they process like it's huge it's how they it's, it's honestly this is how play therapy works kids come in and they process through the play and hopefully they have a therapist who's non-judgmental and can be there with them blah 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 i'm not gonna go into that right now this is how kids process stuff this is how they form relationships this is how they try out different roles this is how they work out the things that they see at home and it comes through in their play like it's ridiculously important play is absolutely enormous and central to the experience of being a child and of course so many kids don't get play don't get safe play with their parents or with their family Um, so many kids are neglected and they're not able to exercise their vagal break and strengthen it um, because they need to through play and adults as well we have our versions of play as well and it's extremely important Uh, but just focusing on kids here so what happens if we mobilize without safety? So for traumatized individuals, play or attempting to play may activate our, their defensive systems without the ability to co-regulate, without the ability to use a vagal break or to accept co-regulation readily. So for trauma, that's for traumatized individuals, it's compromised that they're, if they attempt to play, that they get mobilized, but they don't know how to self-regulate going down the ladder and then back up and holding it. They don't know how to do that. And this is, of course, extremely dependent on their play history. Like I said, if you if you grow up in an environment where you're neglected and you're not getting safe play, your vagal break is going to be compromised. And that's not because of you. It's not because you're defective. It's because you came from a household where you weren't provided that opportunity to do, to do that. And again, think about the kids that don't play well with others. That's what we're talking about is that they have, they go into mo- to a mobilization, but they don't have the vagal break to to regulate, to self-regulate. They don't have the ability to be in a safe social state and in a mobilized state at the same time. This is um, These are kids, of course, that push the limits of acceptable play and they will hurt people while they play and they'll say, like, like I accidentally hurt someone, but, you know, and this is extremely general, but, you know, teachers especially, like you guys know, there's some kids that really push the boundaries of play and, it, and then I'll be like, oh, I didn't do it on purpose or whatever, but, eh, you know. And the way to tell, honestly, is kids who have a safe and social engagement system, they will experience guilt. If they hurt someone, they'll feel bad about it. They won't be, of course, they'll be worried about getting in trouble, yeah. But there will be a sense of guilt and a willingness to make an apology, and you'll, you'll feel that. It, it feels different. But from the kids who don't have, who are more in the mobilized state, the guilt sense isn't quite there. There's more of a um, concern about being in trouble and then also getting out of trouble. Like, how do I avoid getting in trouble? Because they're, they're, they're down the ladder in that mobilized state without having access to their social engagement system. So here's an example. Uh, I went to my son's first soccer game last weekend. This is a, field, this is a little field with 12 toddlers on it at the same time. <laughs> So there's a there's a big mix of nervous systems out there on that little field, uh, big mix of nervous nervous systems and states. Um, they were not all unsafe and social. Some of them were more mobilized and didn't have the vigil break necessary to follow the rules and whatnot. But there was like there was I mean there was so many kids down the ladder, 
and who wanted their parents, wanted the safety of their parents, or would refuse to go on the field at all, or needed something like a, a snack or water, or like they're getting worn out. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's parents in the field. There's coaches in the field. There's a couple refs in the field. Like it's just absolute chaos. And and I, I mean it's it's a toddler thing. So I don't I don't you know what else do you expect right? But it's a fairly dysregulated state of affairs out there. Um, and there's parents on the field like they're, and they're yelling at the kids about what to do with good intentions. And the the the, the ref and is is blowing their whistle and the coach is you know yell, you know yelling at what to do. So super dysregulated state of affairs in general, right? But there's one boy in particular that stuck out to me. And this is a kid who was highly mobilized. He was just out there. <laughs> he's out there on the field on the field when he's not supposed to be. He's not following directives from the coach or the referee. He's touching the ball with his hands. Most of the kids knew not to do that and were able to um, refrain from doing so. Like they they knew the rule and they were able to control their impulse, their mobility impulse to do so to to touch it with their hands. But this kid was like, "Nah, I'm, uh, if I need to touch it, I'm touching it." <laughs> And no matter how many times he was told not to, it just didn't go anywhere. So he is super mobilized, and he's just sort of moving around with any sort of without any like conscious awareness. He knew he kicked the ball, and he attacked the heck out of that ball. But um, there was no concern about what pe- people were saying to him. I don't think he heard them. He was so mobilized. I think I don't think his ears were attuned to human voice. So he may have not even heard what was being told to him. And what was being told to him was in a pretty deep voice anyway. So if he did hear it. It may have kept him down the ladder, honestly. His safe and social system, his vagal break, is not developed enough to inhibit his impulses to move. He could not just sit on the bench. He couldn't just stay with his parents. I hate saying the word couldn't because I believe anyone can, but in that state, he was not able to. I'll put it that way. Um, I don't like using the word can't at all. So his vagal break was not developed enough, right? Obviously. He was crashing into other kids. He was falling down repeatedly, and he kind of just stayed down until someone came and picked him up. Uh, I don't know. It was interesting for me to watch. So I was kind of watching my son and then watching this other child. <laughs> Just sort of studying him. I know I'm horrible. I know. But he wasn't tantruming. He wasn't in a meltdown. He wasn't refusing to move. Um, no sort of shutdown stuff. He was just super mobilized without the ability to use his vagal break and to to be in a safe and social state. So I wondered, now this is a kid that you would say, well, that's ADHD, right? I mean, lots of people would say that and say, well, it's a kid with ADHD. Um, for me... That doesn't quite cut it. So I'm wondering, and I'm making predictions in my head. I, I My prediction was his parents are probably not co-regulating, co-regulating with him super well. And so, of course, I had to observe and see if my prediction came true. So I saw his dad walk onto the field numerous times to correct the kid's behavior. But the dad was always flat affect, no vocal prosody, if he said anything at all. I mean, um, very stoic, very, very stoic. There was one time that the kid was laying down, the dad came out and kind of picked him up, you know, made him, forced him to kind of stand up. And the kid thought he was going to be picked up. So he put his hands up like I'm going to be held. And you could tell he wanted it. And the dad turned him around and gave him a little pat on the bottom and said, go back out. And so it's stuff like that. It's the misattunement with his dad and needing something and not getting it and not getting any co-regulation cues whatsoever that it you know, kind of makes sense that this kid is not in a safe and social state. He's not getting the emotion from dad, at least in that moment. I don't know what home life is like. I'm not making any judgments. But it made sense that there were two people who were down the ladder who were not giving, well, really it's up to the dad. Dad wasn't giving any sort of co-regulation cues whatsoever, no safety, no reassurance. It was just go back out there. 
And nothing wrong with that as long as your kid can tolerate it. But um, I know with, with my child, I was scared that he was not going to go out there at all. He, he's going through this sort of shy phase and he's able to name it and say, I feel shy right now. And he hides his face like in my neck or something. Um, and so I accept that and I give him, you know, hugs and lots of safety and, you know, it's okay to feel that way and blah, 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 right? So I was like, he's not going to go out in the field at all. Um, so for like a week before that, we were telling him, hey, soccer's coming up. You'll be able to play with some new friends and kick the ball and be on the grass. And we, he was, we could tell he was anxious about it. He knew what was coming. And even the morning of and right before the game, I would, I would let him hug me and like let him sort of be shy and I didn't judge it, and I didn't tell it to stop. I just said, yeah, I, I can understand why you feel that way, yeah. And I just gave him really, like, warm, um, non-rushed hugs, I think, which is, which is really important for him. And let him hug me till he felt safe enough, and then he was, he was fine. He was, it was a total non-issue. He came to get some water and snacks but um, during the game. But, um, you know, he, he was totally fine. He followed the directions for the most part. He sort of, like, followed the ball around. He kicked it a couple times. So he was just sort of out there, and he was mobile, and he was following the ball around, like with the flow of the whole thing. But he didn't. He's too, I don't think he got it. He, he didn't understand that you know you, you kick the ball in the net, you can be more aggressive, and all. he'll he'll get there. But he's not there yet. But he he, he had a blast. He, he loved it. He said he wanted to go back and do more. And if that means running around chasing the ball, fine. And yeah, but the, the big difference in the dad that that was with this other kid who was super mobilized was really without wanting to was keeping him down the polyvagal ladder by not providing any sort of co-regulation whatsoever. So why is mobilization unsafe? It's because, well, anything is unsafe without being in the safe and social engagement system. If you don't have that circuitry activated in your body, anything is unsafe. The state of flight and fight, we use this when things aren't safe. But it needs the safe and social system to be active in order to play well with others. Otherwise, all we have is an increased heart rate and, of course, flat affect and the, and the um, you know, mobilized limbs without the safe and social system to regulate it. So otherwise, so this kid's, or anyone's, but this kid in particular, his heart rate was probably really high. He was just moving. He was just going, going, going without any clear direction or safety, like safety net to kind of keep him in the state of actual play and sharing. He, he was like <laughs> rolling over people. <laughs> there was another girl there who was just, enormous she was um must have been on the older end of things because she was just a monster she was like dominating it was pretty cool but uh, she was uh she knew the rules and what was interesting was when she scored a goal she knew the rules she knew to kick the ball she knew what to do where it's supposed to go what direction to go so she had everything kind of good right and she was able to be mobilized and stay within the bounds and when she scored she would look over at her dad and the dad was this now this is interesting actually in contrast, the dad was super prosodic. He was like cheering her on and like she'd look over at him. He'd be clapping and smiling and he would give her all of these safe cues. And so to me, it, it makes sense that she's able to be safe because she's, she's got that relationship with her dad. She looked over at him when she did something good. Um, she was looking for that safety sort of um, check-in, you know. So yeah, it's a huge difference, right? But mobilization could be unsafe because you're mobilized and we, we don't get mobilized unless we're unsafe. So if you don't have the safety engagement system along with the mobilization, yeah, it's just it's just it's a state of unsafety, and your your um, your ears are going to tune to danger. You're going to hear danger. You're not going to hear safe uh, vocal prosody as much. Uh, you're you kind of tune those things out. There's another 
combination of primary states, and this is called stillness. This is social engagement system plus the shutdown system. This is stillness without fear. We've talked about with the freeze state. So this is this is safety, safe and social plus freeze. With freeze, this is obviously a, refre- um, a response to life-threatening events. So in this, it's not. It's, it's being able to freeze while feeling safe. And this looks a bunch of different ways, honestly. So we'll go through the list here. Which one of them is just being able to sit in class. That requires being still. But we, we can't be still unless we feel safe. Another one would be self-reflection. This is being able to look inward with stillness. It's, I think it's kind of hard to self-reflect while you're jogging. I don't know if people do that. But while meditating or doing yoga where you're posing and you're, and you're holding a, a pose and you're being still and you're breathing, there's lots of, I think, self-reflection. I'm not a yoga guy, so I don't know, but I believe that's, how, that's what goes on there. So there's lots of self-reflection, and we don't do that unless we're still and safe. How about also uh, day-to-day using the restroom? Um, you're still, right? You're not really moving. I don't think you're moving around a whole lot while you're using the restroom. But you don't do that unless you feel safe. Let's do a thought experiment here. Try, try imagine yourself in a public restroom with somebody watching you. It's probably not going to happen. Even thinking about it is probably uncomfortable and unsafe, right? Now, if your parents and your kids are knocking on the door or barging their way in there, that's different. You feel safe enough to let it happen, right? But not with the stranger. That's an unsafe situation. At um at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, uh, there was a uh, in the men's bathroom there was a trough, and I would bet a lot of people felt pretty unsafe <laughs> in that situation. It may have had some issues going to the back. It was a trough. It was disgusting. Uh, how about being intimate with a partner? Even just like laying close and being physically close close with somebody is not safe unless there's a safe and social system activated and that both people are in that state together and the other one is sleeping you're laying flat you're being still but you don't fall asleep unless you feel safe do you you're not, you're not going to let yourself go unconscious if you don't feel safe you're going to be awake there's this is like, so this again this is a combination of freeze plus safe and social states traumatized people experience a body a neuroception a body perception of danger when they're still all right, or people that are down the ladder more, people who don't have the safety system, they're going to experience a neuroception of danger when they are still or when they're asked to, to be still. This is like there's an inability to tolerate stillness or quiet for those that are down the ladder more. This may feel like restlessness or irritability or boredom. Boredom's a big one. Or, or feeling antsy or anxious when you're being still or understimulated. But with a, with a weaker vagal break, these small discomforts, like boredom's not a big deal. But, but that becomes a big, big deal if we're down the ladder more. I personally don't mind being bored whatsoever. Um, I like being busy and creating things, but it, I don't mind sitting there doing nothing. That's actually, I don't mind that. I'm, I'm cool being still and breathing. I don't mind, I don't mind that at all. But anyhow, um, so this, for people down the ladder that little bit of boredom or that little bit of like antsiness that comes with boredom or that can come with boredom if, if we don't if we can't tolerate boredom um, this becomes a, a much bigger deal when we're so being understimulated or being still without being safe can be a, a, a danger cue uh, so with a weaker vagal break these small things become big issues and I think for kids in general this is probably developmentally appropriate kids in general don't do super well sitting still and just listening to a teacher. They, they don't do that 
super well, I don't I don't think. Maybe some, but for the most part, kids are pretty darn mobile, and that's pretty developmentally appropriate for them. Um, but with a supporting and a loving and a safe environment, they're, they can, I think they're more able to sit still longer. And also for traumatized individuals, like being able to sit still and to tolerate it is a big, um, big, big um, challenge, a very a legitimately big challenge. Sitting still is potentially unsafe. Again, anything without the safety system is going to be unsafe. Uh, anything without the social engagement system strong enough or activated is going to be unsafe. So the classroom environment itself becomes unsafe. If you're not safe being still and you're down the ladder and then now there's people around you and there's sounds going off like the AC or a train in the background or um, kids yelling outside or the pressure of being in class of having to do well or the teacher pressuring you to like focus on your work and, or like falling behind in class and feeling dumb or teachers making comments that are you know, more on the sarcastic side or who you sit next to, like the class structure, like all these things, this is very unsafe for someone who is down the ladder enough. And if they if their vagal break isn't strong enough, these things become, even though by themselves aren't a big deal, for someone down the ladder, these are a big deal and they compound like there's more and more and more. I've, I've done sessions with people who are in a very dissociative state and they hear things that I don't hear. I, I try to sort of join them in in just the understand of like listening and hearing what that they go through because all they're listening for is the, like danger I think even in this like dissociative state they're hearing things and when they point it out I'm like oh yeah I didn't pick up on that whatsoever even though I know it's probably affecting me that background sort of noise but I'm not conscious of it and um, I've had a couple of kids in their dissociative state be able to name things and, and I just wasn't aware of it all so there's, there's so much going on for a, a kid who's, or an adult or whoever, that's down the ladder and then put in a position of being still and not being able to tolerate it, that they're super overstimulated in, in a very unsafe situation. Trauma and meditation, closing your eyes is, is a scary thing. For someone who's more down the ladder, that can be um, a very scary thing. Um, looking inward can be a very scary thing. Especially if you're in a group environment, that can be very scary. I can keep you in a dangerous state or send you maybe even farther downwards. But those feelings, those thoughts, the judgments, they're going to pop up. When you when someone asks you to close your eyes and focus on your breath, um, hopefully you can tolerate that, but not everybody can. And so all this stuff's going to pop up um, because now there's no escape. Now I can't get up and move and release that energy. Um, now you're asking me to stay put and to look inward. And there's nothing in there that I want to deal with at this moment. So that's an extremely unsafe sort of thing. Yeah, so I, I would just encourage you to not ask, if you're a teacher, don't ask your kids to close their eyes in a group. Um, you can invite them to if they want to, but don't make it mandatory, please. Um, and don't make them look inward more than they're willing to. I, I'm sure you wouldn't do that, but just in case. There was a, when I first started doing um, like DBT mindfulness stuff, uh, when I first graduated, I was at a residential group home uh, with kids in San Francisco that's, were it was a it was a substance abuse uh, residential group home, um, and some of them could tolerate that when we brought it up in the group. But I remember the first time we did it, one kid's like, "I don't want to do that." Like it was awesome because he felt safe enough to be like, "I'm not closing my eyes. It's just not happening." And um, my uh, co-facilitator and I, we didn't expect that because we didn't understand what was happening, and, and we sort of looked at each other and like, "Well, okay, like that seems fine." But now I know that that kid, and luckily he was just like, nah, that's not happening. <laughs> but he, I think he was actually able to say, like, stuff pops up for me, I don't want to think about it. Like, oh, okay, 
like respect, no problem. That, that's that's good. But when you're still and you're not able to be mobile, your primary state will become your focus. Or if not the state, like if even if you can't see or experience the state that you're in, the stories around that state will become the focus. And there's now, if I'm telling you in class to be still, now you can't escape that. I've, I've cut off your escape, which may be to be more mobile or to get up and get water or to do jumping jacks or whatever. And I'm not saying teachers let your kids do whatever. Like I think there's ways to deal with that and we can talk about that in a future episode. But, um, but just at least for now, be aware. And there are lots of things that you can do. Like there's these bands you can put on chairs that kids can... Um, just use their legs to sort of get some energy out, and they like, like they can bounce on the bands with their with their feet. There's stand up desks that teachers can get. So there's all this kind of stuff. There's fidget things that are safe. There's all kinds of stuff that can be done. But just be aware that when you tell a kid just to sit there. Oh, and by the way, during um, testing, there's like state testing that happens where they can't do anything. Just be aware of it for now. At least be aware of it. Okay. So that's that's sitting still. That's being asked to sit still. That could be in meditation. That could be in classroom environment. That could be in yoga. Um, just be aware of these things where you're, when you're asking someone to focus on how they feel that you don't know what's in there. They do. And they're avoiding it for a reason. They're not ready to yet. So just be aware of that. Okay. And then also before sleep is extremely unsafe. And this is something I hear about from damn near every client I work with before sleep, laying down, immobilizing yourself in the dark with no escape. Well, I mean, the escape could be, I guess at home, they could stay awake and watch TV and stuff like that but you're not falling asleep then. If you really want to fall asleep, you kind of have to be immobile and feel safe. So what pops up? Um, anxiety feelings that lead to anxiety thoughts. When you're, when you're immobile, your primary state might take over and that might be um, a freeze, a flight, or a fight. And all these things, these, these things will pop up. Anxiety is very common. Stress, anxious thoughts that are based on the anxious um, feeling which are based more on like a flight mode kind of state, these things will pop up. You'll start thinking about the next day or the previous day or something you didn't do that day or what your boss said or what you didn't say to someone that you wish you had said. And you're going to start panicking about those thoughts. You're not going to fall asleep. And it's, it's, these things can easily spiral out of control. But it's, it's because you're in a state of where you need to be more mobile and where you feel unsafe and then you're immobilizing yourself um, and so all you're left with is that the danger state. Plus, also you're in dark. Like the darkness, darkness is, itself is a cue of danger. Um, and also being alone. So there's all these things be- right before sleep. Right before sleep is a big, big time. So darkness, being alone, and then immobilizing yourself. This is a scary time for people who are more down the ladder. It's not a lot of the kids I work with, not uh, the teens that I work with. Not uncommon for them to get high before they go to sleep. That's their way of dealing with it. Is I get high so I can go to sleep. Even also before sleep, it could be you know simple things like I feel stressed about the day. Like you're left in with you're down the ladder a little bit, and so you're thinking about that coworker or that thing you didn't finish. Right, that's pretty standard, pretty simple stuff. But people who have survived trauma when they lay down um, or try to go to sleep. A lot of other stuff's gonna pop up. Trauma memories, flashbacks, feelings, all like some heavy, heavy stuff's gonna pop up. And again, they're left with being in that defensive state, but immobile, which is a very scary thing. So you're left with the flight, fight, freeze in a in an unsafe immobilization. 
So before sleep and boredom are huge. These are key triggers for kids and adults. But before sleep and boredom, especially for kids, are um, the boredom, especially for kids, these are key areas because they lack the vagal break strength required to tolerate the boredom that comes with being still or to tolerate um, whatever stuff comes up for them when they lay down and go to sleep. So why is stillness unsafe? Again, anything is unsafe without the social engagement system. So being still means you're open to a predator. If, if we're out in the wild and you immobilize, you're now you're open, you're vulnerable. So it's, it's scary unto itself. It, it's a vulnerable moment. And again, story follows state. So if you're immobilizing yourself and you're being vulnerable, your, your state is going to kick up. And those stories that go along with your state are going to pop in your head. Like I kind of already went over this, but you know your thoughts and your feelings they'll match the state that you're in. So whatever your, pops into your head when you're immobilized, that matches the state that you're in. So if you go to still, but you're in a mobilized state, your stories will be more about anxiety-producing things, because now you're not able to move around and use the sympathetic energy. So you're, that stuff's going to pop in your head. And also in a classroom, teachers be aware: there's no way for kids to escape when they're in a classroom. If they're and it's a very unsafe environment for people who don't have the vagal break required. A classroom is a very unsafe environment. Now, literally, like in, in actuality, I'm sure it's safe. I'm sure you have a safe classroom. But there's tons of cues that you're not aware of that kids are picking up, kids who are down the ladder, they're picking up on. So just be aware of that. Um, and especially because kids are being asked or and or commanded to be immobile and to be stuck. And not all the kids can handle that. Some of them are fine. Most of them are probably fine. But not all the kids in your classroom can handle being asked to or commanded to be immobile. And that's what we're asking them to do is to, to become immobile. And for like, that's just, it's not safe. So just at least be aware of it. And there are things, and I'll talk about these in future episodes. I want to go into like polyvagal um, classroom kind of stuff that that'll be in the future. Coping with unsafe stillness. People get pretty ingenious about how they cope with unsafe stillness. Um, excessive TV, using the phone too much. And I'll, I say too much. I don't know what that means for you in your life. That's just generally putting that out there. But TV, phone, video games, using substances. There's all kinds of things that we do to cope with being still while more in an unsafe mode or state or down the ladder. So we're in a different state. And when we do these things, that brings us to a safer state generally is what, I, what I'm understanding. Or at least distracts us from the thoughts we have in our head. So TV is, even though we just sit and watch TV, TV is, is super stimulating. Or watching a movie, it's super stimulating. Because we mirror inside, we mirror internally what we see externally. Like what we feel what the characters feel. We get sucked into their stories. We feel the tension. Uh, we feel the sadness. So we go into this other world, which is, I guess, maybe better than what we have internally. Um, so it's a way to distract ourselves from our own stuff. So we can tolerate being immobile. How many, I mean, so many people fall asleep with the TV on. And all that does is um, distract you from whatever you have going on internally so that you can immobilize in a safe enough way to fall asleep. Yeah, it's, it's, just a, it's a distraction from our thoughts. Or it may be a relief, like with, with, with using substances, like getting high, using marijuana before going to bed. That's a relief from our state. It, it brings enough relief to help, to help someone go to sleep. Even though it doesn't solve anything, it takes away. And the kids I work with are brilliant, and they realize that. And I don't judge them at all about the, the drug use. I don't, honestly, a part of me is like, I don't blame you, dude. Like, you've had a horrible life. And I don't tell them that. 
exactly but there's zero judgment on my end about this stuff um because like this is the I, I truly believe this is the best they can do to get through the day i really believe that but substances they bring us to this different state i'm not saying it's okay to do it at school or, or at work that's not don't don't run away with that all right but just in general so substances bring us to a different state i think that j- substances generally bring us up the ladder um but i haven't done more research on that but it seems like it helps bring someone to if they're in a shutdown state up to a mobilization state which is a step forward at least or it at least takes away the pain enough um or if someone's a little bit more antsy they I mean, so many people i've worked with say they smoke to calm down and to help them socialize and stuff so it kind of helps go up the ladder a little bit that's a whole different episode though sorry so it's but it's at least a distraction from the thoughts that we have while we're Im- immobile and um and substances substances may actually bring us to a different state. Same with TV and phone and video games. All these things may actually bring us to a different state as well. I, I think um, it doesn't solve anything, but it temporarily temporarily is at least a relief, uh, at least a, a relief from the pain and from the thoughts. There's also um, behavior problems. Um, kids, especially in class, this is the most obvious one, I guess. There's lots of behavior issues that pop up, and what they're doing is they're attempting to avoid the stillness of the the um, the stillness and the unsafe feelings that come along with being still. Um, the uns- because it's being like I said, being forced to be still even though you're not you don't feel safe, is a dangerous thing. So you'll you'll see them attempt to commu- I think communicate this. They don't say the words, but their behaviors are communicating where they're at. Um, and then obviously it's not a functional way of communicating, but as teachers and therapists and behavioral interventionists in the classroom and whatnot. They're not just messing around. They're attempting to dispel the energy of where they're at. They're they're really showing us. They're communicating the state of where they're at, and um, and there's 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 this phenomenon where they and I don't think this is on purpose, but they're creating. They're really they're kind of creating the external world to match their internal world, so they are communicating it in a way. But there's also what happens is that the external world begins to match their internal world, which is chaotic and uh, lots of danger cues. So really, it's, it's like the, they, they make the environment match the story, which matches their state. So like I come into school with the story of I'm a problem for my parents and I'm unlovable. And they act this way at school, not being able to externalize the state, the defensive state that they're in. But they are communicating it. They are communicating it, though. And it's, I don't think it's intentional, but it is kind of what happens. So when a kid's down the ladder, the teacher or the parent will follow. They'll follow them down the ladder if their own vagal break is not strong enough, so teachers and parents and therapists, our vagal break has to be super healthy to stay in that place to help the people who are not there yet. And then if we don't, when we drop down the ladder and we use monotone voice or we show disapproval or disappointment or humiliation toward them or shame, now we are reaffirming, reaffirming the child's state. Those behavior problems what they, they, they attempt to communicate, but what they actually end up doing is many, many, many times is reaffirming their stories that they have about themselves of being unlovable or, uh, or about I am a problem. And see, it's true. It, it happened again. I am a problem. I am unlovable. I am being rejected again. It, it's, it's sort of reaffirming their, their, uh, the, the story that they have, which is based on the state. Do me a favor. Um, tell a teacher about this podcast. Your child's teacher or children's teacher. I want this to be common knowledge. And 
if you can help me to get it to the right people, that goal can happen a lot more quickly. I, my, my goal right now is I really desperately want this stuff to be common knowledge. Um, I want all of us in the helping professions to, to be using this language of safe and social, freeze, flight, fight, co-regulation. I want this to be common knowledge. I'm, this is all free. There's no advertising. I'm not selling you a book. I'm not selling you a program. Right now, my goal is like I just want to get this out there and let's start using the same words and really be kind of accurate about what we're saying and what we're seeing. So help me, help me out, please, and tell a teacher about this podcast. Um, I've I've gotten so much good feedback. It seems to be really helping people um, from you know teachers or therapists, massage therapists. Um, someone told me this week that it's helped with their parenting. Um, this is like, I really believe this is fundamental knowledge that all of us should be using that are you know in caretaking or or recovering from trauma or whatever. So help me get the word out. And teachers are great because they're a great way to get the info out there. Like they can implement this language and these ideas and interventions directly into their classroom in very safe, very simple ways. And I'll go into that in the future. I will be doing a, a series on the polyvagal theory and the classroom, like I've been saying. And this will probably happen within the next few weeks that I'll start focusing on the classroom for a bit. And I don't know how, how, many, how many episodes that'll be, eh, three to five maybe, I, but I have no idea. So if you can get a teacher on board now, They'll be able to catch up to the previous seven episodes, so this one plus the previous six, and then they'll be ready to roll with the school environment series that I plan on doing. And um, yeah, so just tell a teacher, please, if your kids are in school, if you happen to know a teacher, like let them know about this. That would be a tremendous favor to me, um, and I would, I would so appreciate that. Hey, but thank you so much for listening. I hope this has brought you some value. I hope you had some aha moments. I hope you feel normal. And that you just survive something extreme, but that you're normal. And if you have a question about anything, I'd love to hear it and possibly address it in a future episode. Feel free to contact me. Thanks again.